Please take your Bible and turn to 1 Corinthians 16. Again, welcome to our guests. Welcome to our members as well and attenders. It's great to see you all this morning on a sunny Washington Sunday morning. Amen to that. I woke up and looked out the window and my heart just became glad. 1 Corinthians 16. It's the summer, which means we have just as many visitors uh, in our midst this morning as we do members. So summer brings summertime activities, vacations, travel. So we, we welcome our visitors. We're happy you're here. I have some friends from California who are visiting. Um, so if you have a chance, say hi to them. Cinnamon and Tim, they're around here somewhere. He's around here somewhere. So say hi to them and, uh, and enjoy some time together this morning. Well, today's Father's Day. And I want to wish all my brothers a happy Dad's Day. And because of the occasion, I prepared a message that's primarily directed to you men. Last month, I delivered a message called The Characteristics of a Godly Woman from 1 Timothy chapter 2. And now it's time for the men. It's your turn to be admonished with a message entitled The Characteristics of a Godly Man. From 1 Corinthians 16, verses 13 and 14. I've always wanted to preach this text, and I'm going to do it this morning. Let's read that text together. 1 Corinthians 16, verses 13 and 14. Very short little verses. Paul said to the Corinthians, Be on alert. Stand firm in the faith. Act like men. Be strong. Let all that you do be done in love. The text I just read is at the end of Paul's first letter to the church in Corinth. And a few facts about Corinth helps us understand the church Paul was addressing, which helps us interpret it more accurately. The city was a prosperous city made by trade, but it was also very famous for hosting the Isthmian Games, which was one of two popular athletic events of the time, the other being the Olympian Games. Culturally, Corinth became so morally corrupt that its very name became synonymous with debauchery and moral depravity. To Corinthianize something came to represent gross immorality. Perhaps you could think of it as the sin city of our time. Religiously or theologically, Corinth was pagan to the core. Towering over the city was a temple to the Greek goddess of love, Aphrodite. How many of you have heard of that name, Aphrodite, from school maybe? Now, when I study the background of the New Testament, my mind goes back to my junior high days. Learning about all the Greek gods and myths, myths I was thinking when I was a child, that they were very fascinating and entertaining. But keep in mind that the people that Paul was writing to actually and literally and really believed that stuff. To them, these gods and goddesses were as real to them in their unbelief as Christ is to us in our belief. Keep that in mind. And in the midst of all that paganism was the birth and the spread of the gospel. In the midst of all that was this little tiny church with brand new believers. 
But that part of our Greek history is omitted from our education, isn't it? What we also don't learn in our secular education is the moral bankruptcy of these ancient pagan cultures. I mean, I don't remember learning about the thousand priestesses who were religious, quote-unquote, prostitutes. And they would go down into the city from the Acropolis in the evening to offer their services to citizens and foreign visitors. This is one example of how debauched their culture was. And again, in the midst of all this, you have the brand new little group of Christ followers, a.k.a. the way, according to Paul, who by the power of the Spirit were trying to live out their faith. Paul founded this Corinthian church on a second missionary journey, and after ministering there for a year, he went to Ephesus. Not long after Paul left for Ephesus, trouble came. And he learned of this trouble was with regard to their failure to separate themselves from their old, immoral, pagan ways. And so while in Ephesus, on his third missionary journey, around A.D. 55, Paul, moved by the Spirit, wrote to them. Paul is writing to the Corinthians to correct their sinful behavior. In chapters 1 to 4, he deals with disunity. Chapters 5 and 6, immorality. Chapter 7, marriage. Chapters 8 to 10, liberty. Chapters 11 to 14, worship. Chapter 15, the resurrection. And the implications of the resurrection in the church. And now 16, he gives the church his final charge, which is where we parachute in today. Paul charges his readers at the end of this letter with a series of commands. They were specific, poignant commands, militant commands directed to the whole church. But since we know, listen men, since we know that you are intended by God to be the head of your household... The primary leader in the home, ultimately responsible for the spiritual well-being of your family. I want to submit to you men one main point this morning. The commands in 1 Corinthians 16, 13 and 14 apply especially to you. Because if you don't model these characteristics, listen, why should your wife? Why should anyone, for that matter? Women, you need to be on guard. You need to stand firm. You need to be courageous. You need to be strong and do everything in love. But men, you have to set the example. In verses 13 and 14, these five commands can be counted as five characteristics of a godly man. And that's what we're going to do this morning. Five characteristics of a godly man that you men need to set the example for. The first one, verses thir- verse 13, the first phrase, verse 13a, is that a godly man is constantly watchful. Godly men are constantly watchful. That means men are not to be lazy and passive. Either they are to be ready to spot out spiritual danger. Paul says, be on alert. It's translated from one imperative in the Greek. And it means to arise. It means to watch, to refrain from sleeping. So men, what Paul is saying here is that you should not be spiritually in a slumber. Ever. 
You are to be spiritually watchful. It includes being alert and vigilant to defend yourself against spiritual foes. He is not he must be prepared for any surprise or sudden attack, including but not limited to these things. Exposure to heretical and false teaching. Changes in the circumstances. Temptation to sin that will sever or at the very least weaken or reduce his fellowship with God. In Bible study and in prayer. In Acts 20, 31, the very same idea of spiritual watchfulness is found in the exhortation by Paul to the elders at Miletus in view of the apostasy that has taken and will take place within the church by fierce wolves. Listen to a very key text on the role of an elder. Acts 20, 28. Be on guard for yourselves. You see the similar language? Be on guard for yourselves and for all the flock, which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers to shepherd the church of God, which he purchased with his own blood. I know that after my departure, savage wolves will come from among you, not sparing the flock. And from among your own selves, men will arise speaking perverse things to draw away the disciples after them. Therefore, be on alert. Be on alert. So not only does a Christian need to be watchful, but even more so a man is a spiritual leader in the home. Even more so, it is absolutely crucial for elders of the church to be watchful, to be on a lookout for trouble, and then respond accordingly. So men, especially You have the duty of spiritual alertness. As opposed to having a sleepy or slack mindset when it comes to spiritual things. Do not be more alert about sports statistics, home improvement projects, or any other hobby. Don't be more alert about your job. Don't be more alert about anything else than your own spiritual growth and the spiritual health of your family. Be watchful. Because savage wolves not only can attack the church, but will attack your home and your own soul. That's the first characteristic of a godly man. Constant watchfulness. The second, a godly man is steadfastly immovable steadfastly immovable. Paul says in the next phrase, in verse 13, stand firm in the faith. Now, all mainline translations render this the same, which simply means that the semantic range of this phrase is limited. That's the literal rendering. That's the only way to say it. Stand firm. Stand firm is to persevere and remain steadfast in something, but we are to remain steadfast in something specific. Notice the definite article, the faith. The faith is the profession of Christ, the religion of Christianity, the only true living faith. Listen, Christianity is the only true faith in the world. It's it. And you have to be dogmatic about that. 
all Christians are responsible to persevere in their walk with God and to remain immovable in their commitment to biblical truths. In other words, we need to be constant in our obedience to Christ and confidence in his word. Now, contrary to the false humility of the contemporary mantra of no one should be dogmatic about anything, you meet men, you need to be examples of standing firm. You need to be men of conviction. Because there is a time. There is a time to stand up and say, this is right, that is wrong. This is true, this is false. This is what we must do. This is what we mustn't do. Because listen, my brothers and sisters, listen very carefully. It is not arrogant to have firm, immovable, biblical convictions. And in fact, it is our duty to be precise and thorough in our doctrine and to come to a strong, mature, biblically informed conviction. That's what Paul is getting here. Stand firm in the faith. He's calling for groundedness and stability. So do not sit down and be knocked down by temptation and sin. And listen, doctrinal indifference. You know, I'm convinced, based on my observation, that men today in general can be legitimately charged with spiritual indifference. Not caring much about truth, doctrine, theology, church history, faithfulness, loyalty, sacrifice, duty, study, discipline, leadership, you name it. I have a good friend that I met in seminary from Australia who met a Danish wife and ended up living in Denmark for a few years. Jen knows exactly what I'm talking about. In Denmark, he quickly saw that Bible-believing churches are apparently a scarce rarity. It's not like America where you have a church on every corner, okay? In Europe, they don't exist. And so he labored intensely to plant one. Hey, there's no church. Let's just go plant one. Okay, he did it. And one of the main differences between American and Danish cultures that he came to realize is that American men and European men, for all intents and purposes, have polar opposite mindsets when it comes to religion. Comparatively, American men still care enough to fight. American men still have the, the, the desire to debate and argue and stand for something. Whereas Danish men just don't give a rip about anything. And so it has created a whole culture of men do not stand firm for anything at all. And brothers, my fear is that we, I'm speaking to you men, as a, as a culture, I fear that even as a church, if we do not purpose to stand firm, we are not far behind. We are not far behind from the cold indifference to everything than European men. So, so refuse. Refuse to lay down. 
and stand firm. Brothers, I hope you're willing to stand firm. I pray you're willing to take a stand for what's right in a culture of relativism, which is the idea that all face, or excuse me, the idea that there's no such thing as a timeless universal morality. I pray you're willing to take a stand for the truth of God's word in a culture of pluralism, which is the idea that all faiths lead to some kind of spiritual salvation. I pray you're willing to take a stand for the sanctity of marriage and of the unborn in a culture of hedonism. The idea that we should live for pleasure and self-indulge at any cost. Summed up in the idea of let's eat, drink, and be merry for tomorrow we die. I pray you only take a stand and declare that God gets the glory for everything. In an age of humanism, the idea that stresses, that stresses man's goodness and potential. I pray you only take a stand for the precious truths that our spiritual forefathers died for. In a culture of ecumenism, the idea that promotes worldwide unity among religions through greater cooperation. You know, there is going to be a massive conference in Washington, D.C., put on by so-called Christians. And guess who they enlisted their keynote speaker to be? The Pope. And if that does not anger you a little bit, you have been wrapped into this culture of ecumenism. You have not stood firm for the, for the precious truths that our forefathers died for. Brothers, I pray willing to take a stand to become more inflamed in your love to lead your family. In a culture of individualism. The ubiquitous idea in our present time that stresses complete autonomy, privacy, and personal freedom to the exclusion of accountability and meaningful relationships. And above all, and most of all, in an age of skepticism, the idea where it's cool to question everything, I pray willing to take a stand for Jesus Christ and the exclusivity of the gospel. And say with complete confidence and boldness, we all must appear before the judgment seat of Christ. Therefore, repent and believe. So men, you must be willing to take a stand. Stand firm, immovable, steadfast in your faith. Or else don't call yourself a Christ follower. A godly man. It's constantly watchful, steadfastly immovable. Thirdly, he is courageously masculine. A godly man is courageously masculine. Look at verse 13c, the third phrase. It clearly says, act like a man. Act like men. Nobody says that. Actually, it's, it's, it's embarrassing for people to say that. Because in our culture, they repudiate gender roles. And even most recently, there's confusion about gender identity, quote-unquote. 
I'd venture to say that biblical masculinity is so far removed in our churchianity, even as much as it is in the secular culture. We need to understand that Scripture says that men are different. And they need to act like it. Act like men. The phrase in the NESB along with the ESV. But if you carry a NIV or NLT, you might see it rendered be courageous or be brave. So which is it? Because that's a pretty significant difference, wouldn't you say? Act like man, act like a man and be courageous. Well, what do you do? Well, that's where your exegesis comes into play. The original text reads andridzomai, which is one word in the Greek, and it means to be manly, become a man, play the man, or in our terminology, man up. It speaks of masculinity as opposed to femininity. He's not saying be grown-ups rather than children. He's saying act like men, not girls. And we... And we also get that not from just the, the language itself, but we get that from the context because earlier in chapter 6 of 1 Corinthians, we see that the culture that the Corinthians were embedded in and they're bringing it to the church was very effeminate. In 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verses 9 and 10, Paul wrote, Or do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived, neither fornicators, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor effeminate will inherit the kingdom of God. In other words, men who act like girls will not inherit the kingdom of God. Very plain. Now, what does it mean to be a man? That deserves some attention, doesn't it? Because to be a man in the world boils down to rugged exterior toughness. Tattoos and beer and cars and trucks. Beards, whatever. Whatever exterior mark of quote-unquote masculinity does not equal godly masculinity. To be a man, biblically, means to exhibit courage in the face of danger. That's what men are to be. To exhibit courage in the face of danger. They're not meant to be cowards. They're not meant to shirk off their God-given responsibilities to women. It doesn't mean they're to be harsh and mean-spirited and hard for the sake of being hard. But listen, it does mean that men must not be wimpy either. Now, I'm not trying to paint a picture here of a macho, domineering, John Wayne style of manliness. Those are worldly characteristics that do not define biblical masculinity. But there are some biblical principles that reveal men were created to be different in a way that demands bravery, deliberate charge, and physical toughness. Because it's evident that after the fall, we see that men were supposed to be the ones painstakingly laboring for food and toil. Remember Genesis 3? and in thorns and thistles, and by the sweat of his brow. That's man's job. Have you guys ever had to do hard labor? With, with, in thorns and thistles, by the sweat of your brow, and toil? That's man's job. And that, that just requires some toughness, doesn't it? 
And Paul said, when he said, act like a man, he meant to be courageously masculine in that way. He is calling for the kind of masculinity that's all about character and conduct. Uh, Listen to John Piper's definition of, of, of biblical masculinity. I think it's very, very, very good and biblical. He wrote this in a book he co-authored called Recovering Biblical Man and Womanhood. He said, quote, at the heart of mature masculinity is the sense of benevolent responsibility. Keyword. To lead, protect for, and, uh, excuse me, to lead, provide for, and protect women in ways appropriate to a man's differing relationships. Again, key word, responsibility. Now, you may rightly ask, where in Scripture does it say that men have the responsibility to lead, protect, and provide? Well, again, Piper says that the word responsibility is chosen to imply that man will be uniquely called to account for his leadership. And here's where we get this biblical principle from. This is illustrated in Genesis 3.9. When God says to Adam first, where are you? Eve sinned first, but God does not seek her out. Adam must give the first account to God for the moral life of the family in the Garden of Eden. This does not mean that woman has no responsibility at all, but it simply means that man bears the unique and primary one. Isn't that interesting? Eve was the one that was duped. She hands it to her husband, catapulting the entire human race into sin. But God goes directly to him. This is what gives. So there we see the chief fundamental purpose of man. The responsibility to work hard and the responsibility to shield his wife from spiritual destruction. That's masculinity right there. That's masculinity. So we need to be masculine that way, men. Failure to do so is sin. And like Adam, every single man will be held accountable for that. So far we've seen that a godly man is constantly watchful, steadfastly immovable, courageously masculine. And fourthly, the man of God is firmly established. Look at that. Next phrase in verse 13. Paul says, be strong. Be strong. Again, the command is one word in the Greek, but unlike the former three commands, the verb is in the passive voice, which simply means the doer is being acted upon. Or to put another way, the subject is the receiver of the verbal action. So literally, this verb means be strengthened or be established. It's something that's happening to us rather than something that we're doing for ourselves. There's a command that we are to go do ourselves, and, the act, and we are the actor acting upon or what we're acting upon. Here, God is saying, be strengthened 
and something. And what? Well, a synonym for this word is found in a familiar passage in Ephesians 6. The context of the armor of God. Paul wrote, finally, be strengthened in the Lord and in the strength of his might. So Paul is commanding the Corinthians to be strengthened or be established in the Lord, which is to imply that being strong is not something that we do on our own. It's very important here to understand this verb. Being strengthened is not something that we do on our own. Rather, it's the Lord's work in us that he does. We do not strengthen ourselves. It is his work that he does in us when we are firmly rooted and established in his word and growing. That's what it means to be strengthened. Now, why do we need to be strengthened? Why, 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 why the short, militant, direct command to be strong? The answer is very simple. Because Jesus promised us opposition. And in order to weather that opposition, to weather those violent persecutions, we can't be weak. Jesus said in John fifteen twenty, if they persecuted me, they will persecute you also. He said in Matthew 24, verse 9, a very frightening passage. Then they will deliver you to tribulation and will kill you and you will be hated by all because of my name. I guess you just forgot about Jeremiah 29, 11. No. Jesus said they will kill you. And guess what? They did. They did. Every apostle except for John was martyred. They killed him. So it goes without saying that we have no other option, brothers and sisters, to be strong. Be strong in the Lord. Commenting on this verse, one of my favorite preachers said this. If you are going to enter the battle of the Christian life in earnest, you will need to be able to endure antagonism, derision, controversy, contempt, and abuse of every kind. It will come from intelligentsia, academia, your college professors, maybe even your high school teachers, and the dregs of society alike. Worldly governments, the common people, the academic elite of this world will conspire together to oppose us just as they oppose Christ himself. If you watch the news, you should be shaking your head in 100% agreement. The weak in faith will not be able to withstand the opposition that naturally comes with being a true Christian. That's why Paul says in 1 Thessalonians 5.14, help the weak. Help the weak. So men, be strong. Model strength in your walk. Because if you are weak, you will crumble when opposition comes. And guess what? 
so will everyone else around you. Lastly, and fifthly, a godly man is genuinely selfless. Genuinely selfless. Verse 14. Paul says, let all that you do be done in love. Be done in love. Now, it's the popular word that most people know, agape, which means affectionate regard or benevolence. And one interesting thing that I learned in my study of agape is that the plural form, agapi, was used to speak of Christian love feasts in the early church. Jude 1.9. These love feasts were public banquets and connected with the Lord's Supper. And they were intended to be an exhibition of mutual love within the Christian community. The provisions were uh, contributed by wealthy individuals, and they were made common to all Christians, whether rich or poor. And also portions were sent to sick and absent members. And so we can see then that true love, godly love, Christian love, agape, is all about service and sacrifice. And we could talk all day about the meaning of Christian love, and it would be worthwhile if we could, because if there's one attribute of God that's the most misunderstood, misdefined, misapplied, it's hands down the love of God. In the world, though, love is cheap. It's temporary. It's conditional. It's emotional. It's romantic. It's fickle. It's physical, and it's selfish. So it makes me cringe to hear people, Christians and unchristians, apply their meaning of love to God's love for sinners. They're nothing alike. Most of all, worldly love is self-serving. Meaning I only feel love and give my love as long as I'm getting something out of it. And when the time comes where I don't see any benefit to the relationship, my love for that person has gone. Which is why you see so much divorce. So a right view of love must start where? The gospel. The gospel. And when we understand the gospel we are challenged to abandon all cultural and secular definitions of love. In order to obey this command, let all, you do, let all you do be done in love, you need to believe the gospel first and foremost, and you need to have a deep understanding of the gospel, because in the gospel we see the greatest manifestation of true love. Amen? John 15, 13, Jesus said, Greater love has no one than this, that one laid down his life for his friends. That's love. So to do everything in love is to conduct oneself with an attitude of genuine, sacrificial selflessness, as Christ did. He came not to be served, but to what? To serve. So we need to understand that biblical love takes the focus off of self 
and puts it on to others. So don't think you're a loving person. Don't claim to be loving if you don't genuinely have others' well-being above your own. That's godly love. But it's extremely difficult to embody that love, isn't it? Extremely difficult. Because we're all sinners. And listen, you know another reason why it's hard to embody that love that I just described? Because everywhere else but here, you expect it to be the very opposite. <laughs> right? The world tells you to have high self-esteem. The Bible tells you to humble yourself. And to count others as more important. The world tells you to, quote, unquote, just be yourself. The Bible says deny self. The world tells you live for self. The Bible says abandon yourself and make disciples. That's your primary mission in life. The world tells you don't judge. The Bible says preach the gospel to every creature. Which presupposes plenty of righteous judgment going on. The world tells you, you deserve it. The Bible says you deserve hell. But in love, Jesus gave himself as a ransom so that through faith you can escape it. The world tells you you need to forgive yourself. The Bible says you need God's forgiveness. The world says you need to love yourself. The biggest lie of our culture. The Bible says, let all you do be done in love for others. See the difference? See, the world tells us to do the exact opposite of what the Bible says. And you're not going to hear that anywhere else but here. You're inundated with that. You're inundated with love yourself, forgive yourself, live for yourself. Don't judge others. Just do what makes you happy. The Bible tells you to do the polar opposite. And unless I love you enough to tell you that's false, you will never be able to obey verse 14. Because true love is sacrificial love. True love is genuine. Care for others above yourself. That's what a godly man is, brothers. If you do not model that type of love, watch anyone else, especially your wife and children. <clears throat> this type of godly man is one who makes sacrifices for himself for the good of others. He is genuinely selfless. So we've seen today that a godly man is also constantly watchful. He's alert for spiritual danger for himself and his family. He is steadfastly immovable. He has convictions. Don't buy the lie that it's rude or prideful and arrogant to be dogmatic about something. Make sure you're dogmatic about the right things, but be dogmatic about the gospel. 
but what the Word of God plainly says. Be courageously masculine. Act like a man. Don't act like a girl. Be willing to take the responsibility to lead, protect, and provide. And be genuinely selfless. Model the sacrifice of Christ. Not the ugly romanticism that's taught in the culture. Service and sacrifice with love. So men, on this Father's Day, make a conscious effort from here on out to be this type of godly man. Look at yourself in the mirror of God's word and see what kind of man you really are. And maybe today, on a day that's all about you, brothers, maybe you can renew your commitment to godliness. If you have failed in any way to be alert, to stand firm in the faith, to act like a man, to be strong, and to do all that you do in love. Will you pray with me? Father, thank you so much for your word. It's so clear. We need to be alert, be strong, act like a man, do what we need to do in love. It's so clear, Lord. We fall short. We fall short because of our sin. We fall short because of the lies we are constantly inundated with. I pray for the uh, repentance of the men here today. Who I know, like I have, failed in so many ways. Become more alert about football and whatever hobby we like. It's so evil. May we repent of our laziness and spiritual apathy. May we love our wife and children enough to be responsible to lead them and love them and serve them and teach them and model these characteristics. It's only possible by your spirit, Lord. We cannot be strengthened on our own. And so I beg you to give us a more sensitive conscience and deeper conviction about these truths. May you be glorified in all we do. In Jesus' precious name.